0: Make sure you're subscribed to Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit that subscribe button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc.
1: Along with uh, the Founding Fathers and almost every single American historical figure, Christopher Columbus has fallen on tough times. Now, that didn't begin with the recent spade of vandalism and iconoclasm in American culture. It started, well, in the 20th century. Americans who thought very positively of Christopher Columbus... Now, generally think very negatively about him. What would happen if we tried to expunge him from our culture altogether? Welcome back to Issues etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us for a biography of Christopher Columbus, Dr. Bradley Berzer, he's Professor of History and Russell Amos Kirk Chair in American Studies at Hillsdale College, author of several columns on Christopher Columbus for the imaginative conservative. Dr. Berzer, welcome back.
2: Hi, Todd, thank you. It's always good to talk to you, it's been a few years.
1: What are some of the most popular progressive myths about Christopher Columbus?
2: Well, he's become a hated figure. Really, I think, a symbol of everything that's wrong with Western civilization. It's It started... In the 1960s, and it was part of the New Left, and you see this in some of the movies that came out in the 1960s, but a complete revision of the Western and what the Western was about and a kind of anti-John Wayne movement in Hollywood, like Little Big Man and other movies such as that. And so in the 1960s, there really just became a kind of anti-American mythology, and Columbus was tied into that, of course, because he is the great discoverer. Of America. And so he became this great symbol. I mean, to the point where we get into the 1980s and into the 1990s, and you have people like activist and actor Russell Means, whom I I loved in The Last of the Mohicans, but he makes a statement that someone like Columbus is as bad as Hitler. And so once you start mythologizing Columbus that way, or I should say demythologizing him in that way, once you start using him as a bad exemplar, It's very hard to recover from that.
1: What are your thoughts on the prospect of changing Columbus
2: Day to Indigenous Peoples Day? Well, I'm deeply, deeply sympathetic to Native Americans. I'm deeply sympathetic to the indigenous people. I think that they, of almost all peoples, were probably treated the worst in terms of what it meant for America to develop. And that doesn't mean I would give up anything that America developed. But there's no doubt that we could have treated the Indians in a better fashion. And I think there were times when we came close to treating them very well. And then there were many, many, many times when we treated them horribly. So I don't have a problem with Columbus Day. And I don't have a problem with Indigenous Peoples Day. I just don't think it should be on the same day. (laughs) I think both can be celebrated in their own way. And I think it's unfortunate that we've tried to conflate the two.
1: How did Columbus change the world?
2: Oh, my gosh. That's a huge question, Todd. And he changed the world in so many ways. So no matter what we think of Columbus, it would be impossible to describe modern Western civilization without referencing him in some way because he is such a critical figure in the late 1400s and the early 1500s. Most importantly, he changed the world in terms of environment. So on his second expedition, to America in 1493 he brought with him over 1200 men in 17 ships they brought sheep and pigs and chickens and horses and cows and this was for all intents and purposes an interhemispherical swap of animals and plants and people and pathogens. So certainly Columbus did a lot. And again, that can be good or bad, but he did a lot to change the very landscape of America. But he also changed the very landscape of Europe. So the old world at the time brought with it, as I just mentioned, things like horses, which had been extinct in North America for a long time. And it's almost impossible to imagine the Great Plains Indian without the horse. But Columbus also brought with him cattle and sheep, and chickens, honeybees, which were known as English flies at the time, and actually flew ahead about 100 miles of the European frontier. They brought with them wheat, and rice, and barley, cabbage, turnips, lettuce, so many different things, even something like, which seemingly innocuous, like Kentucky bluegrass, originated in Spain and was brought to America. But what did the New World give? The New World gave a lot, too. It gave corn and sweet potatoes. It gave potatoes, Tomatoes. It's impossible to imagine Italian culture without the tomato or Irish culture or Scandinavian culture without the potato. But this was all the result of what we call the Columbian Exchange, this huge movement of peoples and goods starting in the 1490s.
1: What did Americans generally believe about Columbus and his explorations prior to the 1990s or so?
2: Yeah, he was a he was a great hero. And he was taught as a hero, and quite often schools would have portraits of Columbus up in classrooms. And certainly up until about 1992, in the mainstream, he was regarded as quintessentially American, that is, as establishing America. And there was a celebration of that. And you you don't have to look any farther than Chicago in 1893. They were a year off. They should have done it in 1892, but they missed it by a year. And they had the huge Columbian festival there. Just an amazing, amazing world festival in Chicago at the Columbian World Fair. And the celebration was meant to be of the 400th anniversary of Columbus. And much of the Chicago skyline along the lake is still to this day set by what that World Fair was about in 1893. Basically, any good American came to Chicago for that festival. So, yeah, I think that tells us a lot about what Americans think. But that really changed in 1992, in the 500th anniversary of Columbus's arrival here. Uh, There was actually only one company that tried to support Columbus, and that was Long John Silver's. And it was a major, major marketing failure. They were the only company to support Columbus, and uh, yeah, it, it went the other way. Absolutely, went the other way, and suddenly became Indigenous People's Day, and so forth.
1: So, go into a little more detail. Where did this now common idea that Christopher Columbus was evil? Where did it come from?
2: Well, it really is a project of the new left of the 1960s, and the new left was very intelligent. They were playing the long game. They recognized that unlike their parents, the old left, they were not going to be able to really influence labor unions and other things, and so they played the long game by going into education. And they infiltrated the university. I mean, to this day, you know, it's almost impossible at any mainstream university to be a serious conservative or libertarian. Almost everybody is somewhere on the left and they may be moderate left to radical left, but they're somewhere on the left. And that took a long time for the left to be able to accomplish that, but they did. And they were effective both in primary schools as well as in secondary and in university in university colleges. They were very effective. But again, they played the long game, and Columbus was seen as this great symbol of evil to them. And so they wanted to hitch all kinds of things to him so that by knocking out Columbus, they can knock out almost all of the idea of the American frontier and American expansion.
1: So Columbus was a pawn in their game to essentially undermine the foundations of America itself.
2: Yeah, that's what I would say, Todd. I think that's well put. A pawn is a good way of putting it. Again, they're playing the long game. They know that they have to infiltrate things, and they do it. This is where we get political correctness. It was a Maoist concept in the 1960s, and the idea of collective guilt and race, class, and gender, all of these things really came out of that movement. And again, whether we agree with them or not, they were very effective. You
1: mentioned collective guilt. So, How has Columbus then become a symbol of all of the evils of white colonization and what the left would say is the collective guilt of Europeans and white people? You
2: know, I think we do this always in history. We always try and find these mythic symbols. And we do it for good and we do it for bad. And we always want somebody. So when we say something like Jefferson, we don't just mean Thomas Jefferson. We mean almost a whole group of thought or we mean America— in the early republic. And I think that's what Columbus had become as well. Columbus had really represented the spirit of America. In fact, I was just uh, right before you and I started talking, Todd, I was teaching, I'm teaching a class this semester on the American frontier. And today we went through the Lewis and Clark expedition. And it's fascinating that when Lewis and Clark came back to St. Louis and they had been missing for almost two years, most people assumed that the effort had failed and that Lewis and Clark and their men were dead somewhere in the Rocky Mountains or wherever they may be. They didn't even know there were Rocky Mountains, but somewhere in the West. When they showed up in St. Louis, there was a huge celebration for them. And St. Louis threw an official party for them, and they gave 18 toasts. And, you know, I can't imagine how anyone was coherent after 18 toasts. But they gave 18 toasts to them. And it was either number seven or number eight. And I meant to bring this in today, and I'm sorry I didn't, but to bring those toasts in for this conversation with you, Todd. But in either number seven or number eight, they toasted Christopher Columbus as the great patron of exploration. And they saw Lewis and Clark very much in line of Columbus. And I I think that's absolutely true. When we look back to the age of exploration, Columbus was one of the bravest men who's ever existed in Western civilization. He was daring. He had fortitude about him. He had courage about him. He had intelligence about him. He had insight about him. And again, he he, he did some stupid things. Uh, he did things that we shouldn't celebrate, especially when he enslaved certain Indians or mistreated the Indians. And he was punished for that back in Spain for having done those things. So he was reprimanded for those. And again, I don't want to say that we should just celebrate everything about Columbus, But I think we can celebrate his daring and his audacity. And that's exactly what Americans did up until recently. And now it is Columbus is kind of a bad word. You say, I mean, more than a kind of, he is a bad word. And his statues have been coming down. And even organizations, good Catholic organizations like the Knights of Columbus, obviously made in his image, dedicated to him as an exemplar or the daughters of Isabella, the women's auxiliary of the Knights of Columbus. You know, in 2020, when all Hades was breaking loose in the streets and statues were coming down, and, of course, they're still coming down, but when they were really coming down in the summer of 2020, the Knights of Columbus and the Daughters of Isabella were just quiet about it, and I, I find that tragic. Why did Columbus want to explore? Ah, oh, that's such a complicated question. I think there's something natural to the explorers, and it doesn't matter if we're talking about Balboa or Ponce de Leon, or Pizarro, or Cortez, any of these great explorers. Coronado, there were so many, Verrazano, there were so many amazing explorers at the end of the 1400s and the beginning of the 1500s. There had been Portuguese and Spanish and Italian and French explorers, some English explorers as well. And it was the great age of exploration, the age in which we could discover what Africa was really like or the Europeans could discover how to get to China, which, of course, Columbus always thought that he had done, that he had gone to India, never realizing that he had actually come to North America. So there's this amazing audacity with him, and I admire that, again, no matter how much wrong he did or the other explorers did. They had that incredible desire to come here. But Columbus was more than just an explorer... He was deeply, deeply religious, and I've had the chance to write about this. My wife is actually much more of an expert on Columbus than I am. He, she knows his biography much better than I do, but I've had a chance, and I, especially in kind of a reaction to all of the statues coming down in 2020, I had a chance to write on Columbus and look into him pretty deeply, and it's pretty stunning how religious he thought he was to the point Of real mysticism. I don't know any other way to explain it. And I think we could either say that his mysticism was false or real. I I don't think we necessarily have to buy into it. But he was deeply, deeply influenced by the Franciscans of his day. And the Franciscans, one of the orders of the Catholic Church, really one of the most radical orders of the Catholic Church, was thoroughly convinced that we were in the end times, that we were very close to the end of days. Columbus even believed that the earth would end 155 years. That's his determination, that the earth would end 155 years after he discovered India. So not 154, not 156, but 155 years. And he was convinced that he was an instrument of God. And again, we can either say he's crazy or he's brilliant, but he thought of himself very much as an instrument of God, ushering in the apocalypse. And he had very complicated views about this. He believed that there had been a group of Portuguese bishops who had disappeared from Europe during the Islamic invasions of Europe. There were probably seven of these bishops. They were led by a guy named Prester John. And you see this actually throughout all Spanish exploration, all the way up into the 18th century. The Spaniards are always looking for the seven cities of gold or the seven cities of these bishops or what's called El Dorado, Saboya. They were looking for all of this. And uh, they, they had believed that these bishops had fled but had created Christian kingdoms somewhere in Asia that somewhere in Asia, there were these seven cities. They had converted the Chinese to Christianity. And Columbus believes that in his expedition to the West, that he is going to encounter these people, and he's going to recreate an alliance between the Spanish and the Chinese, and that together they will be able to surround the Muslims in Jerusalem and retake Jerusalem. And Columbus used almost all of his money, the money that he earned, From his expeditions, uh, he turned it back over to King Ferdinand, believing that King Ferdinand would be at some point the new ruler of Jerusalem. They wanted a new crusade. So this is a long way of answering that, Todd. But Columbus had very complicated views about his own position in things. He's not just an explorer. He also very much sees himself as an instrument in God's hands. Dr.
1: Bradley Berzer is our guest of Hillsdale College. We're getting a biography of Christopher Columbus, and we'll talk a little bit about his explorations next. You can listen to our new audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. It's voiced by the book's author, Pastor Todd Peppercorn, and includes an introduction voiced by Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Just go to issuesetc.org, enter your email address, and we'll send you a link to the audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. Issuesetc.org, and enter your email address.
0: In a child's life, meaningful relationships matter when it comes to academic development and spiritual nurture. In Lutheran schools, students know they are uniquely and wonderfully made in God's image. Each day in over 1,800 Lutheran schools, children experience a rich, academic, loving, and Christ-centered environment where they can explore and develop their God-given talents and abilities. To find a Lutheran school near you, visit lcms.org slash schools.
3: Solid. Serious. Substantive. You're listening to Issues Etc. Have you ever wondered about some of the more difficult topics or teachings of Scripture, such as what does the Bible say about polygamy, or slavery, or the free will, or what about law and gospel? The October issue of The Lutheran Witness is a twin to the August 2022 issue, and it takes up some of these difficult teachings of Scripture and explains them in detail. To get your copy, visit cph.org witness or the Lutheran Witness website witness.lsms.org. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. Pumpkin spice flavored everything is in the air. It's the perfect time of year to curl up with a nice warm beverage using one of Ad Cruesome's mugs, featuring your favorite Lutheran symbols, Bible verses, or Christian humor. For example, Jesus' personality type is INRI, St. Paul is the patron saint of the run-on sentence, and of course, chancel culture is practiced here. Visit AdCruesome.com. that's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot
1: com. We're getting a biography of Christopher Columbus. Dr. Bradley Berzer is our guest. He's author of several columns on Christopher Columbus for the Imaginative Conservative, a professor of history and Russell Amos Kirk Chair in American Studies at Hillsdale College. Dr. Berzer, tell us about Columbus's explorations.
2: Well, he had four. And the first one was, of course, amazing in 1492 because he comes over and he discovers the West Indies. Again, he does not realize that he's doing that, but encounters the American Indian for the first time. At least in recent memory, we know that there had been earlier discoveries of America, the Vikings, for example had come over almost 400, 500 years earlier. There's some evidence that maybe the Japanese or the Chinese had explored the Pacific coast and South America. We have Japanese pottery, for example, that's thousands of years old in places like Ecuador. So there's always this evidence that other peoples had visited besides the American Indians. But certainly Columbus is the first modern person to visit the American Indians and to establish a continuity of what that relationship would be with the Europeans and with the American Indians. When he discovers the American Indians, he's shocked because many of them, and this is in the Caribbean, they're either nude or they're wearing almost nothing. And Columbus is befuddled by this because, of course, scripturally, The only people who could go around naked without shame would be Adam and Eve. And so the Europeans were very perplexed by this. Were the Indians somehow non-human? Were they animals? Were they innocent humans who had never fallen? This actually, and this, even when Protestantism begins, this is a huge debate among Europeans exactly what is the American Indian. And that all really begins with Columbus and with Columbus's expedition. But to get to your question, Todd, Columbus explored America four times. Uh, He came over on four expeditions. The first expedition was very, very small, only three ships. As I said, the second expedition was huge with 1,200 men and 17 ships. And then we have a third and fourth expedition, mostly into what we would call South America now. But again, Columbus, when he died, he still believed that he had discovered Asia, did not realize that he had uncovered the new world.
1: Why did he believe that? Why did he believe that he had found what is, in essence, the east coast of Asia rather than the eastern part of the American continent?
2: Yeah, it wasn't until a man named Marigo Vespucci came over to America, who, and this was in the late 1490s, so in between Columbus's expeditions— And he believed, he was the first to believe, this has to be a kind of new land. Columbus was convinced, again, to the end of his days, he dies in 1506. He is absolutely convinced that he has reached the outer parts of either India or China. And those words were really interchangeable in Columbus's day. India just meant the east. China meant the east in some way. But he was always looking. He was just absolutely determined to find what they called the land of the Grand Khan, And this this would be the land that was ruled by the Chinese. And again, there was always that rumor that the Chinese were either Christian already or that they were on the verge of converting to Christianity. So I think that Columbus had these predetermined views and he never really got out of those. They were settled convictions on his part.
1: So go into a little more detail. You mentioned other explorations by other peoples. The Europeans were not the first non-Native people to visit the New World, were they?
2: No, they weren't. Again, as far as we know, and there are always rumors and we know that the Vikings came. That is unquestionable. We have good evidence that they were in Newfoundland. We have very good evidence that they were there, but they didn't seem to do the same kinds of things. So one of the great tragedies of Columbus and can we really blame Columbus for this? I mean, some people have and the new left have, but Columbus, of course, brought with him diseases, a lot of European diseases for whatever reason, the Vikings didn't, uh, at least as far as we know, they did not bring those same kinds of ills that affected the Indians when Columbus came. And it seems to be after Columbus coming that it was just relentless. I mean, we can estimate Todd that probably 90 to 95% of American Indians died because of disease. We know that, for example, in 1500, there were roughly about 25 million Indians living in what's today Mexico. And by the end of that century, by 1600, there were only 1 million left. 24 million out of 25 million were killed by disease. It's astounding. And the Europeans, of course, had already gone through their disease factor. They had already had the plague, everything that had happened through the 1300s, and it wasn't that it didn't still affect Europeans. In fact, about one out of every seven Europeans at the time of Columbus were still dying of disease, the disease that ravaged them, but nothing like the ravages of the American Indian. This is a long way of answering you, Todd. We know that there were earlier peoples who had come to the Americas, again, possibly the Chinese, possibly the Japanese, the Vikings, definitely. There was always a rumor that a Welsh prince by the name of Madoc or Mad Dog had come over to America, probably in the 1100s. And these rumors persisted because there were always descriptions of Indians, especially in the interior and places like North and South Dakota, with blue eyes. And because of that, there was always this questioning, had Europeans been here before? Now, we actually... Estimate and we don't know for certain, Todd, but the old story was always that the American Indian population was made up of one huge family, somewhere between 50 and 150 migrants who came over from Mongolia and crossed into Alaska. Now it seems to be the case that there were probably two major migrations from Asia. And maybe one from Northern Europe that actually made the American Indian population. So that's all been in flux, especially since 1996 with the discovery of Kennewick man in Kennewick, Washington, when they found this person that they believed to be a Caucasian male who had been killed, who'd been murdered, and then discovered he was actually thousands of years old. So everything's kind of in flux right now about where Native Americans came from.
1: So you mentioned before the Colombian Exchange. What did the old world bring to the new world and vice versa?
2: So the old world really brought a lot. Uh, it brought things like horses and cattle and sheep and chickens, but it also brought with them. And this was the tragedy. Of course, it brought with them smallpox and typhus and measles and malaria and diphtheria, whooping cough, many of these things crazily, which most Europeans would have survived again, not one out of seven, but six out of seven would have survived. But when it hit the American Indian population, what would be called a virginal population, because they had been isolated for so long from the other parts of the world, it just ravaged them. But the new world gave a lot as well. And since we're on Lutheran radio, I always, I, I like to emphasize one of the most important things that Columbus brought back to the old world was the potato. And I would never in any way, and please don't take me wrong here, Todd, I would never in any way suggest that the Reformation occurred because of the potato, but there's no doubt that by the time we get to Luther in 1517, and then of course in the excommunication in January of 1521, that the potato, by giving a kind of equal caloric intake to Northern Europeans... Allowed Northern Europeans to have a semblance of freedom from Southern Europe because Southern Europe had had a very long growing season, had always had a higher caloric intake with grapes and with olives and so forth. And the potato really equalizes that. You can grow potatoes almost anywhere and it became the food of choice for Northern Europeans. I don't find it surprising that Northern Europe finds its own voice after the Columbian Exchange. So again, I I think the Columbian Exchange is huge in terms of what it does to both European and American cultures.
1: So you had mentioned the disease. Were there other negative effects of the European exploration of the new world?
2: Yeah, there were. And disease went the other direction as well. Syphilis came from the new world and went back to the old world. And that absolutely wreaked havoc upon the upper classes I and mean, it's their own fault of course this is what we might call a freely chosen disease you don't get this disease by accident but certainly syphilis ran through the noble houses of europe and it's probably one of the reasons that certain kings and queens had a very difficult time having proper heirs to the throne syphilis was really a huge factor in the royal houses of europe so it did go both directions certainly
1: Dr. Bradley Burzer is our guest. We're getting a biography on Christopher Columbus, and we'll talk about whether or not we can lay these negative effects at Columbus's feet next.
0: The church's music from the twentieth century. The 17th century. The 11th century. The 8th century. The 4th century. The best of the church's music from the past 2,000 years. LutheranPublicRadio.org
3: Education and edification. You're
0: listening to Issues Etc. Join Lutherans for Life and Why for Life in Washington, D.C. Thursday, January 18th through Saturday, January 20th for the 2024 Why for Life Free Conference. Registration is open through December 15th. Learn more at whythenumber4life.org. Great events, speakers, and social time. The 2024 Why for Life free conference, January 18th through the 20th in Washington, D.C. whyforlife.org. Memoria Press
3: is a worldwide leader in the publishing of classical Christian education. We have everything you need for students in kindergarten through 12th grade, and our materials can be used in any classroom setting to suit your needs. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 to save five dollars at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time.
2: Often because of physiology or prolonged stress and other factors too complex to understand, Believing the gospel of free forgiveness does not take away depression. Many go untreated, ashamed, and believing that a strong faith would preclude such difficulties. And so the path to wellness is through a restoration of such faith. Not so. Robert Price wrote, poor mental health does not necessarily denote poor spiritual health. Too many factors pertain to both to allow for any sure correlation. In fact, in the kingdom of Christ, God values exactly the opposite of what we value. He values weakness, the weakness
0: of the cross.
1: Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, reading from his foreword to a new audiobook produced by Lutheran Public Radio called I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. We'll send you a link to listen and download I Trust When Dark My Road. All you have to do is enter your email address in the pop up at issuesetc.org. I trust when dark my road, a Lutheran view of depression by Pastor Todd Peppercorn, issuesetc.org. We're getting a biography on Christopher Columbus with Dr. Bradley Berzer. Dr. Berzer, before the break, we were discussing the negative effects of European exploration of the new world. Can we lay these negative effects at Columbus's feet?
2: Well, I just don't think that's fair. Columbus had no idea what he was doing in terms of diseases. In fact, it's really not until the 1860s. So we're talking the Civil War until Western scientists come up with the idea of germ theory at all. And that's a long time after Columbus to go all the way to the 1860s. And it's just a theory in the 1860s, and it's not widely accepted Until the 1890s, and we only have one example in American history of anyone, and it it may have happened elsewhere, but we only have one recorded example of anyone ever trying to infect the Indians with a disease, and that was a British officer by the name of Jeffrey Amherst in the 1760s who gave blankets that had clearly been around people with smallpox to other Indians, and we might call this a form of germ warfare. But even he didn't really know what he was doing at the time. And I'm I'm not going to excuse Amherst. I think he's a criminal. I think we should reprimand him for what he did. But the idea that Columbus somehow knew that he was carrying these diseases is absurd. He didn't understand that at all. And in fact, we find all kinds of stories of European missionaries coming to the American Indians... They arrive at a village, and suddenly, after they've arrived, and it could be Jesuits, or it could be Quakers, whomever, they arrive in a village, and within a few weeks, there's mass sickness in that village. That, of course, is not what the missionary wanted. The missionary came over to convert, not to kill. So I think we have to be very careful about who we blame for disease and what disease actually did.
1: How was Columbus regarded in his day?
2: He was a hero. Again, he was reprimanded because of the way he treated the Indians. Queen Isabella did not want any enslavement of the Indians, and we know that Columbus did actually enslave a few and bring them back to Europe, and he was reprimanded for that. But he was seen as a great hero, and he was promoted as a great hero. And certainly by the time we jump to actual American history, by the time we get to the colonies, and the time we get to the American Revolution and into the early republic, Columbus has really become a fascinating figure in American culture, and American children would have learned Columbus in the same way that they would learn about George Washington, and he would have been in a lineage of great heroes. And so there's no doubt that Columbus is promoted even more once you start getting a lot of Italian Americans in the United States. Columbus will become kind of the great symbol of Italian-Americans by the late 1880s and 1890s, especially when you have huge Italian immigration coming into America. But that's not to suggest that he wasn't revered before that. He most certainly was in this line of heroes.
1: Did Columbus understand the scope of his actions in terms of having opened a way there to the new world? Did he understand how profound a world-changing event
2: It was no, no, he really didn't. And again, I think that we could either say that this was his mysticism or maybe we could say it was his arrogance, however you want to judge it. But I think because he was so fixated on the idea that this was a religious mission, it meant that in some way he had to be in China. And again, he just didn't have a concept That this was a whole new world that he was discovering, even on the edge of his death. And Todd, I I just, to bring this into kind of perspective, he believed that by going to China, he would be meeting with what he called the great Khan of the Golden Horde and believed again that this was really a, a religious mission in some way. He said at one point, roughly about 1500, he said, God made me the messenger of the new heaven and the new earth of which he spoke in the apocalypse of St. John after having spoken of it by the mouth of Isaiah, and he showed me the spot where to find it. Columbus even wrote a book called The Book of Prophecies towards the end of his day in which he explained that everything he was doing was connecting China to the old world, specifically to Europe, so that they could retake Jerusalem. So I again, we can call this kind of mysticism or we could call this arrogance on his part, but I think it blinded him, for better or worse, to what was really going on.
1: Do you think that Columbus's reputation can be restored?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, Todd. I think that there's only one way to go at this point. We either dismiss Columbus or we revive him in some way. And I know that there's this, again, a movement right now in 2023 to remove statues of him in various cities. But what's going to happen? What do we do with a city like Columbus, Ohio? Are we going to rename it? I mean, what? It's just, it's insane to me when we think about how many towns in America are named after him or how many places we have statues to him. That we would tear all of that down and maybe as a 56 year old, I'm just blind and as a conservative, I'm blind to the movements of history, but I just can't imagine that we can't find within Columbus something good Uh, and especially again, you know, even though he brought disease, he also brought together the Europeans and the Americans And the same thing is true with another Spaniard who I think was far more guilty of what we might call genocide, and yet even he wasn't genocidal. Someone like Hernan Cortes, who really brings together the various peoples, who brings together the Spanish with the Mexican people, with the native Mexican people. And to this day in Mexico, this is celebrated as a day of the mixing of the races, the creation of the Hispanic people. So I don't think that we can go any farther in denigrating Columbus But I think there is a possibility, especially if we start taking seriously what his religious motives were. And again, I think we can either say he was crazy or he was prophetic, but however we want to take it, I think we can see that there's something deep and fascinating to the man like anyone, like any person, he has his flaws and he was deeply flawed, but he was also deeply gifted as well. And I think we miss something when we don't recognize how gifted he was. And again, you know, I bring this back to my class today in this discussion of lewis and clark i think the fact that lewis and clark who to me are two of the greatest americans ever i think the fact that they could have seen themselves in continuity with columbus tells us a lot about columbus and it also tells us a lot about lewis and clark and i I would take it even farther todd and i don't mean to be too airy about this but you know there are so few times in world history where our governments do things like actually spend money to explore, not to create war, but to explore. Columbus is one of those times where a government laid out lots and lots of money for an exploratory idea. Lewis and Clark is another example. U.S. government basically gives a huge amount of money to this expedition. And I think the moonshot of the 1960s, I think the moon landing in 1969 was another one of those. And I I just personally can't help but celebrate those, even though they all had their downsides. There was also a real brilliance, a really kind of humanistic, in the best sense, a kind of humane quality to understanding what the world is. And so I think those things should be celebrated, even as we recognize the downsides to each one of those expeditions.
1: As an historian, what's the danger of looking at a man like Columbus and judging him By a sinless or utopian
2: standard. By doing that, we dismiss every human who has ever existed. I think we just run the risk of destroying humanity by doing that. And I think that's a terrible risk. And I think it's something that the new left, and I'm not saying the right has always been perfect by any means, but the new left has consistently been anti-humane since the 1960s. And I think they want so deeply to remake the human person in their image that they're willing to run over acres and acres of bodies to get there. And we've seen that not necessarily with the American new left. But with the left in other countries, we've seen it in all kinds of places like Cambodia and China and Russia. We've seen that when you start denigrating the human person so much that it ends in Holocaust camps and killing fields.
1: Dr. Bradley Berzer is professor of history and Russell Amos Kirk chair in American studies at Hillsdale College. He's author of several columns on Christopher Columbus for the imaginative conservative. You can read these columns at our website. Issuesetc.org. Click Talk on Demand Archives. Dr. Berzer, thank you. Thank you, Todd. Friday on Issues Etc. We'll continue our series, Kids Have Questions, with Pastor Jonathan Connor. And on This Week in Pop Christianity, we'll talk with Chris Rosebro about Patricia King's claim that God is raising up millionaires. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening.
3: is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.
0: I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of His family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org, unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways. This is Jeff Schwartz, General Manager of Lutheran Public Radio, with a message for listeners in the Mountain and Pacific time zones. We pledge to have Issues Etc. podcasts posted daily, no later than 5 p.m. Mountain, 4 p.m. Pacific. This will allow you to download and listen to the latest Issues Etc. podcasts weekdays during your evening commute. Again, if you live in the Mountain or Pacific time zone, download Issues Etc. before you leave work and listen during your drive home.